Hello, I'm Kevin Moore, and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined with Joseph Farrell, where we'll discuss his new book, Roswell and the Reich, The Nazi Connection. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll be right back. Mr. Show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. Listening to the Moore Show, and here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. We're about to be joined with our guest, Joseph Farrell. Here's a bit of background on Joseph. He holds a doctorate in patristics from the University of Oxford and has published four previous works, all on theology. His hobbies include in playing classical music, alternative history, and science. He has published many books on Nazi secret weapons, including Reich of the Black Sun and the SS Brotherhood of the Bell. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. 
Okay, uh, we're going to discuss your latest book, Roswell and the Nazi Reich, but first of all, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, were you not based in Oxford to do your uh, PhD work? Yeah, I, I was for uh, about two years from 1985 to 1987 when I finally got the defil and then uh, came back to the States in 1987. So I haven't been back to your country in a long time. Yeah. Yes, I was there. And how did your latest book, Roswell and the Right, come about? Well, I have been writing, as you probably know, a series of books on, on Nazi uh, technology, some of their developments in aerodynamics and, and um, those sorts of associated technologies. And it's always been apparent to me that it had massive implications, some of the things that they were doing for the whole field of ufology, and in particular some of the early stories of, of crash and retrieval, and, and of course Roswell being the premier one. So I decided, you know, over the course of a few years after I got the groundwork laid, that I was going to eventually take that groundwork and use it as a context by which to interpret the research and, and conclusions of, of other Roswell researchers. And I want to make clear that in, in doing that, I'm certainly not arguing or holding my position with a kind of uh, dogmatic passion. I'm simply tossing it out there as yet another <laughs> another alternative to be considered when you examine Roswell. But having said that, I do I, I do adhere to my position very strongly. So Roswell and the Reich came out basically as a as a kind of an exploration of what I call the Nazi hypothesis to explain the event. So okay, explain for the people out there um, what you believe the Nazis were working on on the latter end of World War II, and also explain what the bell was. Okay, well, towards the end of World War II, the Nazis were working on a number of what I would call marks, you know, Mark I, Mark II, Mark III, very advanced aerodynes, uh, beginning with the idea of kind of saucer-shaped craft that would suction the boundary layer in a typical jet turbine fashion right through the surface of, of the craft itself using microporous cinderized metals, you know, very tiny little holes in the surface to suction the boundary layer. And what that does is essentially it makes the aircraft kind of like a wet uh, bar of soap, you know, it slips through your fingers and that would be kind of what the effect would be for an aircraft. It, it would greatly reduce drag. So they were working on a number of these types of craft and in addition to that, it's my belief argued on the basis of some research of your countryman Nick Cook and then Igor Witkowski, of course, in Poland, that they were also working on a device called the Bell that was in all likelihood, and in my opinion, this is where I kind of depart from, from Mr. Cook and Mr. Witkowski, in my opinion, the Bell was kind of a gateway technology, Kevin. It was, it was designed by the Nazis to do one of three things simultaneously, and that is, first of all, it was a technology designed to tap into the vacuum energy or the so-called zero-point energy. Number two, it was definitely a technology that, and here I do agree with Mr. Cook and Mr. Witkowski, it was a technology that was designed to lead them into practical, realizable field propulsion technologies, or if you prefer, anti-gravity. And then the third thing, of course, not, <laughs> Nazis being Nazis, is, is that they wanted to weaponize this stuff. So I think there's actually three aspects involved in the motivations for the project. But the Bell itself definitely was a gateway type of technology to what we would now consider field propulsion. 
Okay, and um, where did this technology sort of come from? I mean, it wasn't from studying ancient Sumerian tablets, was it? I mean, where's your research took you in, in that direction? Well, actually, that's an excellent question. My research posits three sources for the kind of physics that they were attempting to engineer with this device. And one of those sources I do believe, and I go into that at some length in, in a book of mine called The Philosopher's Stone, uh, one of the sources I do believe came in part from study of esoteric and occult tradition uh, via Himmler's Rasputin, a fellow, an SS general by the name of Karl Maria Villegut, and, and I go into some of this in, in The Philosopher's Stone. But the other two sources, and, and I want to dispel the inevitable question that so many people ask me, they always ask me, well, couldn't the Nazis have recovered a, a crashed UFO and back-engineered ET technology? You know, I get this all the time. And my point is, I go out of my way in my research to show that you do not need to invoke ET to rationalize the terrestrial basis for the physics that they are investigating, because on the one hand, in the interwar period, as you know, you had a great spate of publications on unified field theory, in Germany, beginning in 1921 with the publication of, of Theodor Kaluza's uh, five-dimensional unified field theory that unified electromagnetism and gravity. And then, of course, you had the various versions that were put out by Albert Einstein beginning kind of in an outline paper in 1925 and then his first version of a full theory in 1928 and so on. So there was this great interest in, in these hyperdimensional uh, unified field theories inside of, of Germany in between the wars. Now, that's all fine and dandy. We can have all the theory that we want. But to me, the most amazing piece of this physics engineering story is a paper that was published in, I believe, 1935 by a Hungarian electrical engineer by the name of Gabriel Krohn. He, he was an absolute genius. And he published a paper, and it's very important to understand what he's saying here. He published a paper that won him the Montefiore Prize at the University of Liège in Belgium. Of course, you know, this is right across the border from Nazi Germany, so you've got, you've got the Nazis watching all of this with great interest. Well, Krohn said in this paper that these unified field theories, these hyperdimensional unified field theories that were appearing in the literature in the 20s and the early 30s inside of Germany, were the theories that could explain the anomalies that any electrical engineer always encountered when they were dealing with large, networked, and usually rotating electrical systems. Now stop and consider, Kevin, what he's just said. What he's really just said is that with 1935 technology, even though those theories may be incomplete in the formal theoretical sense, they were nonetheless engineerable theories with 1935 technology. And that means that with that technology then, you had the potential to engineer space-time or the vacuum energy locally. And that's a whopper. And it's very interesting to me to note that almost at that instant in time, you had the complete silence of publication in, inside of Nazi Germany on anything to do with unified field theory. And of course, the excuse was given, well, it's all Jewish physics. But I think the reality is that was a convenient ideological cover 
to disguise the fact that this is precisely the type of physics and engineering that the Nazis went after with this Bell device with a vengeance. So why hasn't anybody else come forward um, with this technology or the or this sort of idea um, uh-huh. so far then? Well, I think they have. There was a famous American physicist uh, by the name of Thomas Townsend Brown that was arguing very much uh, the same type of thing and on similar principles in this country. And in fact, circa, I, I believe it's about circa 1954-55, he even pitched a proposal to the U.S. Navy called Project Winterhaven. And it's at that precise time in the mid-50s that your countryman Nick Cook observed a very interesting thing in his book called The Hunt for Zero Point. Because prior to this time, there had been a great deal of discussion of the practical potential for a real anti-gravity technology in the open literature. But right about this time in the mid-50s, it suddenly completely disappears. And so I suspect that people were coming forward, and as soon as people in the American and and British and and Canadian defense industries realized that this stuff really was a practically workable technology, that it all became deeply black, and that's the reason I think we haven't heard about it. So is there any actual, um, I suppose, physical evidence that there was any sort of prototype launching pad for some sort of new craft, um, as in the bell that we've described? And again, when we talk about the bell, are we, are we sort of trying to envisage a sort of prototype uh, UFO craft back, back in the Nazi heyday? Yeah, I think you can envision. I think you can envision it as a kind of a prototype UFO craft, although it was not something that people actually climbed inside of and flew around. In other words, all the evidence suggests that it was something that still was attached by cables to the ground, but it did observe, it did have a certain observed levitational capability. Now, there is some interesting physical evidence that has been kind of left as a trace that was uncovered by Igor Vitkovsky, and this, this is a kind of a... Uh, hinge-like structure. It looks rather like a modern version of Stonehenge that's located in in the Polish town of Ludwikowice that he believes was kind of a test rig for this device. Now, there's been recently some people coming out that have been trying to say, well, this is nothing but the foundational structure for an electrical uh, power plant's cooling tower, okay? And I, I get this argument all the time, too. There's just one big problem with that argument, and that is that Allied photo reconnaissance, which Igor Vitkovsky has a photo of in his book called The Truth About the Wunderwaffe, Allied photo reconnaissance of this facility, and the picture's right there in his book, never shows either a cooling tower or a bombed-out cooling tower <laughs> over the structure. Yeah. So in other words, it may, it may resemble the foundation for a cooling tower, but it was certainly never used for that, okay? So we do have kind of physical trace, uh, trace evidences of this project. So yes, I, I believe it really did exist. And in my opinion, Kevin, my research has pointed me, contrary to, to the uh, opinion of, of Mr. Cook and Mr. Vitkovsky, that it came to this country and entered American black projects after the war. My belief and research shows me that in all likelihood, the project was continued in independent Nazi hands after the war, under the aegis of, of Juan Perón's government in, in Argentina. 
Okay, well, that, let, let's fast forward it then to um, sure. the, that particular point. Let, well, let's go to the Operation Paperclip, which, you know, uh-huh. obviously allowed many Nazi scientists who wanted to go to America and make a new life for themselves, you know, rather than right. obviously go to the Soviet Union. Um, now, arguably, there were some of the best sort of rocket scientists um, that, that, that went to America in the, in the end. But, I mean, uh-huh. which were the scientists which were unaccounted for that you believe went to Argentina? Oh, that's an excellent question, and in fact, I get into that in quite some detail concerning two of them in particular, in Roswell and the Reich, and one of them is a fellow by the name of of Dr. Ronald Richter. This is the guy that I begin researching in in my book called The Nazi International, and I continue that research in, in Roswell and the Reich. This is the fellow that headed up the continuation of the Bell Project for the Nazis in Argentina, all right? So that's definitely one big name to pay attention to, and, and uh, he, he, is, he is really a very important figure in this post-war story of, of the development of this Nazi technology. The other interesting character is a fellow that is mentioned very explicitly in the post-Roswell U.S. Air Force Intelligence Collection Memoranda, In fact, one of these memoranda was dated September 1947 by the chief of Air Force Intelligence at the time, which was, uh, uh, I want to say he was a major general. I I may not be certain of the rank, but he was certainly a a general officer. His name was General Shulgin. Well, he put out an intelligence collection memorandum, and part of the memorandum very explicitly demands that his agents find out where in the name of sense the Horton brothers went. And these, of course, were the two German... uh, aeronautical engineers that designed those famous German flying wings, all right? Well, as it turns out, (laughs) the designer of the pair, Reinhard Horton, wound up in Argentina. And guess (laughs) guess what he was doing in Argentina? He was designing these (laughs) these very advanced, sophisticated Delta Wing jet aircraft (laughs) and flying them around. for Juan Perón, and I've even got a picture of one of these things in, in Roswell and the Reich. So you had, in other words, you had this kind of uh, post-war extraterritorial Nazi state that existed in Latin America, and under the, the ostensible office, auspices of some of these Latin American governments, it was just <laughs> it was just continuing what it was doing during the war. Sure, sure. But, I mean, wh- why Argentina? I mean, was that a sort of a, a safe house for the, for the Nazis? Well, yeah, this this is another good question, and, and I wrote a, a whole book on, on this aspect of the story called The Nazi International, and I get into the Argentinian connection very uh, deeply in that book. Juan Perón, of course, was, was a Nazi file. He just thought they were the best thing since tea and sliced bread. But um, the really... The, the really deep aspect or the reality of this story is is that during the war... The Nazis had bought up a whole tract of land in southwest Argentina in in, uh, Rio Negro province near the town of of San Carlos de Bariloche. And this tract of land was some 10,000 square miles. I mean, my word, we're talking an area the size of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. That's a lot of land, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of land. And they turned this into a, a kind of a Nazi state within Argentina. You had to have passes to get in and out of this thing. It was guarded by former SS officers. 
you know, it was it was a real military preserve in, in the proper sense. And this was kind of, in my in my opinion, kind of the post-war Vatican, if you will, of this extraterritorial Nazi post-war international, as I like to call it. Um, I think this was kind of the nerve center or the headquarters for it because most of that continuation of the Bell Project was located within the environment of that compound, all right, at, at uh, secret laboratories built on Waymo Island, just uh, on the lake across from San Carlos to Bariloche. So I think this was, for a period of time at least, in the immediate post-war period, this was kind of the nerve center for this, this post-war Nazi international. Okay, well let's now talk about the uh, the Roswell incident, because obviously this is where it all leads on to. Now, in your own right. words, sort of tell me the original story of Roswell, uh, as far as your research has led you to believe. Well, the, the original story, I stick very, very close. Anyone that reads my books will know that I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a footnoter and a documenter. So the first thing to realize about Roswell and the Reich is I subject all the major Roswell researchers, both pro-ET and anti-ET, to a thorough review of what they have said about the incident. And it's interesting that when you read the story of Roswell in that way, the story emerges in several distinct layers of telling. The very first layer of telling the Roswell story was, in fact, told by the United States Army Air Force, okay? And it put out, within mere hours of each other, two essentially contradictory stories. The first story that was reported was, of course, that the U.S. Army Air Force had recovered a crashed flying saucer, all right? And that's all that was said. There was nothing about bodies, there was nothing about any indication of the origin of this presumably recovered flying saucer. All that they said was that they had recovered a flying saucer and shipped it on to higher headquarters. Okay, that's it. But then within mere hours, of course, we know the rest of the story. They made Major Marcel fly to Fort Worth to the headquarters of the 8th Army Air Force and then displayed a bunch of weather balloon wreckage and then put out the story that, oops, the intelligence officer of the only atom bomb group in the world at the time <laughs> had misidentified a weather balloon for a flying saucer. That's right. You know, and that makes me think, well, you know, we are either being led, uh, fed a, a lot of horse pucky here, or they have an utter incompetent as their intelligence officer. Exactly, yes, exactly. Reporting on atomic bombs, you know. So the whole story is ludicrous, but... It sets up what I call the Roswell dialectic, because ever since that time, the interpretations of the story, regardless of who's been researching it, has either been to support the extraterrestrial hypothesis or to support a completely mundane and kind of trivial terrestrial explanation for it. Namely, it was a balloon of one kind of another, a weather balloon, a mogul balloon, what have you. It's, it's all rather trivial when you get right down to it. Now, the interesting thing is that in the recording or reporting of the story, the reports of bodies only emerge some, I think, two and a half, three decades later in the telling of the story. So in other words, we've got two data sets that we have to contend with, the claim of extraterrestrial bodies and then the descriptions of the debris. Now, to outline what my scenario is in brief and to explain my rationalization for it, I believe that that dialectic was deliberately itself a disinformation story. 
and that the flying saucer story with its connotations of extraterrestrials and so on was kind of the deep cover layer of disinformation, as it were, to deflect attention from the fact that what may have crashed there was something from this independent post-war Nazi international organization that was flying all of its advanced projects around American airspace with impunity and surveilling and reconnoitering our most sensitive defensive installations. And there was really nothing in our technological arsenal that could bring these things down. Now, here's the reason why I think they had to cover this up. One of the reasons is obviously political. Because if something Nazi has been flying in your skies two years after the supposed end of World War II, and it crashes in the desert, and the the technology that you recover is identifiably of German provenance, then, yeah, you're going to cover it up for political reasons alone, because that means that the old enemy was not defeated. It simply went underground, and it's operating in the world somewhere, and not only just operating, but continuing its advanced research projects independently of any of the victorious powers of World War II. So there's a political reason for it. And then, obviously, there's a technological reason. Because if this stuff is that advanced, and it did not fall into American hands, and it didn't fall into British hands, or Canadian hands, or French hands, or Soviet hands, then this means they had better find that organization and also get their hands on this technology as well. So in other words, they are going to panic, as they did, and they're going to create all sorts of cover stories to keep people from investigating the fact that it may be of terrestrial origin and something, therefore, that came from the only place that had that kind of technology at that time, Nazi Germany. So in your opinion, you know, ex-Nazi technology flying over the U.S., sort of sending a message to the former enemy, in a sense, that, you know, we have technology you can't touch. That's exactly right. And here's another factor that I mentioned in Roswell and the Reich that I think is very important. There is a very strong case that some ufology researchers have made that President Truman actually issued shoot-down orders, secret shoot-down orders, to the United States Army Air Force beginning in 1947 to literally shoot these things down. And here's the caveat, if they could not be talked down. Now, my point here is, is, number one, why would you assume that these things are extraterrestrial if you're trying to talk them down? And number two, why would you be risking an interplanetary, or for that matter, interstellar war with something clearly technologically superior if you thought it was capable of interstellar travel? I mean, if, if they had that capability, they'd stomp all over us, you know. So my point is, by issuing the shoot-down order, they have probably already come to the conclusion that this stuff, at least some of this stuff, represents some sort of advanced terrestrial technology in somebody's hands and that that somebody has not very good intentions towards the United States. Sure, sure. But surely, you know, American and European secret services, you know, must have known of the the sort of Nazi secret bases in Argentina. I mean, oh, yes, I think yes, I think they did. I think I think that there is a certain amount of evidence to to suggest that they certainly knew that there was a post-war Nazi organization. The problem is, is that in Argentina's case, they had the protection of a relatively powerful mentor in a relatively powerful country in that region of the world, namely Juan Perón in Argentina. And their intelligence service kind of acted as, so to speak, the, the 
cutout man for anyone trying to investigate these people. And, and at that time, the Argentinian service was a fairly efficient organization. So I think that is one possible explanation for why this organization wasn't rolled up. But there is another very important one, and that's called the Bilderberg Group. In my opinion, to be very brief, the true purpose of the Bilderberg Group was to take all that Nazi loot and move it into British and American and Canadian banks and literally put it at the disposal of the Western corporate elite in return for laundering their money. So in other words, if you look at the attendees at those early Bilderberg meetings, who do you have on the European side, on the continental side? Well, you've got Prince Bernhardt, a former SS officer, and of course he's going to be reporting to his higher-ups in this post-war Nazi organization. You have Dr. Hermann Josef Ops, the former CEO of Deutsche Bank, and at the time of the war, the actual paymaster to Adolf Hitler. So in other words, I think it's very clear, if you examine the circumstantial evidence, that a lot of money was moved into those banks. Now, you're not going to want to move against your former enemy if they are, in fact, expanding off the books your ledger credit entry-making ability and turning over to you a lot of money to use for your own post-war recovery. So I think there was a quiet detente that was struck, and that, in turn, kind of trickled down into the Western uh, European and, and Canadian and American intelligence services as kind of a do-not-go-there order to their intelligence services. So again, I mean, okay, you're, you're talking about there the connection between, uh, you know, the secret high-tech Nazi group and I suppose what we would call nowadays the New World Order. Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly what you have, is you have a post-war detente between uh, what I like to call the Anglo-American elite, or if you prefer, the New World Order, and this post-war group of Nazis that uh, basically was based around this Nazi money. Exactly. So, going back to the crash at Roswell then, um, uh -huh. some of the original testimony was of, you know, human-like beings being found at the crash. Ah, uh, wrong. This, this, again, is a, a later development in the story. The original story was simply the crash and recovery of a saucer and later that same day of a weather balloon. It is decades later that bodies emerge. Now, here's the significant point, and I, I really want to drive this home. And I take a great deal of time in Roswell and the Reich laying out all this witness testimony. In most cases, Kevin, you are dealing with secondhand testimony and secondhand dead man's testimony at that. Now, as far as I know, in a Canadian, American, or British court of law, such testimony would not be admissible legally. All right? And even if we do admit that testimony, if you look at the physiological details that are being described for these so-called extraterrestrial bodies, not one of them is really compelling to the idea that they're extraterrestrial. They could equally be descriptions of people with progeria, which is exactly the thesis of, of Nick Redfern. So on that basis, I don't think we have a compelling argument that it was extraterrestrial at all. And we must remember that this layer of the Roswell story comes much later than the story of the initial crash and recovery of some very weird technology. So let's look at the technology. If we look there, what we see are descriptions of some very unusual debris. And what I attempt to do in Roswell and the Reich, in fact, the last part of the book, is concerned with a very detailed examination of all of the uh, 
statements concerning this technology and showing that in all but one case, there is a clear Nazi antecedent for this technology. Okay, Joseph, we're going to take a break there, so uh, stay tuned and we'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk.
you're listening to The Moore Show. And here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm currently joined here with our guest, Joseph Ferrell, where we've been discussing his new book, Roswell and the Reich, The Nazi Connection. Now, Joseph, uh, in your book, uh, you speak of the survivors of the crash in Roswell um, were communicating uh, in either Spanish or German. Uh, just tell us a bit more about that, please. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting story. The story itself comes from one of those Roswell witnesses who was himself later impeached as a witness by the Roswell research community. Okay, And I do mention that testimony, you're quite correct, in the book. But I also point out that he's a witness that no one in that research community anymore accepts. But for the sake of argument, let's accept his story. He does say that there were people in his party that came across some of these bodies, one of whom was someone who apparently had had multilingual skills and knew how to speak German and Spanish, and that he attempted to speak to these creatures, whatever they were, human or otherwise, in German and Spanish. So again, even if you admit the story, it doesn't make sense to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Because why, if you assume that they're extraterrestrials, are you going to be attempting to communicate with them in German and Spanish? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, the story, the story as, as a witness for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the story doesn't make much sense on a logical point of view. But what about the people that swear blind, you know, they saw bodies there? Oh, sure, there are such people. But again, my point is, what in the descriptions of their physiology compels you to the conclusion that they're extraterrestrial? Large heads, skin, you know, hairless skin. My point is, look at the details of what they're saying, not their interpretation of what they're seeing. Look at the details of what they're saying. Do any of those details compel to the conclusion that they're extraterrestrial? Well, what about the language or symbol markings on the wreckage? I mean, why did they think that uh, they may be looking at Japanese or Chinese? Exactly. Another problem for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing, and that's a good question, the interesting thing is that the Mogul people, the people promoting the Mogul balloon hypothesis, have pointed to that and said, oh, see, looky, looky, this is nothing but the kind of funny symbols that you see on certain kinds of tape that was used on the Mogul balloon, okay? Well, what I did in Roswell and the Reich was I took uh, Jesse Marcel Jr.'s drawings of the hieroglyphics that he claimed to have seen on some of this debris and which he drew under hypnosis, okay? And then I said, okay, now why is it that the claim is always made that they cannot decipher the language of these symbols. Well, my answer is, is that these symbols may not be indicative of a language at all. They may be indicative of certain kinds of quantum states of a field of plasma. And then I put up the uh, pictures of, of the electron cloud of hydrogen under certain conditions of states of excitement. And they look eerily, I mean, in some cases, identically similar to some of these hieroglyphs that Jesse Marcel drew. So my point is, even there, you can rationalize apparently inexplicable symbols on a purely terrestrial basis, and one, moreover, that is on the basis of a science that is purely terrestrial and something that you would expect to find in a craft that might be using that kind of uh, advanced uh, plasma field propulsion. So again, you know, what I'm, what I, I may sound like I'm nitpicky here, but what I'm trying to do in Roswell and the Reich is take all of these descriptions in their details 
and go over and find out, do any of these things argue conclusively and, and uh, compellingly for an extraterrestrial hypothesis? And the answer I come to and, and hold very strongly to is no. And they do answer, in my opinion, to something that points the finger very definitely towards Nazi Germany. So in your opinion then, you do believe that the extraterrestrial aspect uh, was spun into the story, but if that's the case then, why? Yes. Well, I think again, it serves the purpose of disinformation. If we're dealing with an advanced terrestrial technology and trying to keep it secret, we certainly don't want people thinking or digging around for the potential scientific basis for that technology. That's number one. Number two, if we are dealing with something that is the crash of a technology representing a post-war independent Nazi extraterritorial state, then there's another reason that we're wanting to keep this secret down till this day, and that is, quite simply, the political reality is Nazism survived the war in an organized, well-financed fashion. And that's the other secret they're trying to keep. But wasn't there more than just one, uh, you know, Roswell crash, in a, in a sense? Well, there have been people arguing for second crash sites, and I do not get into that aspect of the story because once you do, you're dealing with you know claim and counterclaim and a blizzard of footnotes, and you really lose sight of it. I personally do not think that there is a second crash site at Corona, as certain people in the ufology community have argued, nor at Aztec or any of these other places. I think there was a debris field and most likely a primary crash site, but not a second one. Uh, I do get into just very briefly some of these aspects of the story. But again, my point is is that there is nothing, even if you do involve these stories, that argues compellingly toward an extraterrestrial conclusion. And do you still believe that uh, the, the, you know the Nazi connections is, is still there in Argentina, or, or was that dismantled a long time ago? I mean, oh no, no, there is still a very, very heavy. Uh, there is still a very heavy German. Germanic presence in that region of Argentina. And it also, there is still a very uh, kind of post-war neo-Nazi feel to it, and, and even across the border in that region of Chile that, that borders that region of Argentina. So something is still there, yes. Uh, it's very difficult to get into these areas, of course, because <laughs> they're very highly guarded, and they don't, they don't like people coming in, and, and people that do attempt to, to go into these areas like Peter Lavenda did some years ago was, were politely told you must leave the country <laughs> you know? yeah. and they they pick them up and, and they put them on planes and, and get them out of there it's true so uh, yeah it's still there something's still there yes so you, you spoke about the uh, the debris um, earlier on in, in, in the discussion. I mean, what about the memory metal character characteristics of oh, the that's debris? wonderful. I'm so glad you raised that. I'm so glad you raised that. Because the, the memory metal is something that when the pro-ET community has pointed its finger to the ET interpretation of the event, that for them has been kind of the compelling, conclusive proof that this had to be extraterrestrial. And the more astute of them have gone out and said, well, yes, we discovered a, a memory metal called nitinol in 1965 at the U.S. Uh, Naval Research Laboratories in Maryland, all right? But, you know, then they point out, well, that's 1965, but this happened in 1937, and therefore it was really almost 20 years ahead of the, ahead of the game, so er, ipso facto it had to be extraterrestrial. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Well, one of the things I do in Roswell on the Reich is I point out that memory metals, contrary to what most of those Roswell researchers say, were actually discovered in 1932 by a Swedish chemist. And, of course, 1932, that's a year before the Nazis take power, and Sweden is just north of Germany across the Baltic Sea. Now, is memory metal going to be something that the Nazis would be interested in, most likely? And again, with enough money and manpower and, uh, of course, German chemists and metallurgists and so on, who knows what they might have come up with. But it is simply untrue that the idea and the fact of memory metal did not exist before Roswell. It existed fully 15 years before the event. Sure. Uh, but where is that kind of material today? Where, you know, when they describe that kind of material, I mean, it couldn't be burnt, it couldn't be uh, torn, you know, I mean... Some it, of that material, yes. Some of that material, the non-burning material and so on and so forth. Um, there is another little known fact about that debris, and that is that Marcel, apparently in one of his very, very early interviews, Kevin, picked up some of this stuff, some of that um, memory metal foil, and blew through it, okay? He said that you could blow through it. Now, to me, this is one of the most significant and most overlooked clues to the Roswell event, okay? Because let's go back to that wartime German research to suction the boundary layer. That's that little thin molecule, thick or so layer of air that sits stationary on any lifting body, on the lifting uh, surface of an aircraft wing or something like that. It is a thin little layer of air that stays stationary, okay, and that creates drag. Well, the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, before the war, were all researching ways to try and figure out how to suction that boundary layer off the lifting surface. And the Germans came up with the nifty idea, <laughs> well, let's just make a microporous, centerized metal that will literally suck that boundary layer through small little perforations in the surface of the lifting wing itself. So they developed a kind of metal called Luftschwamm, which means aerial sponge, all right, for some of this advanced research work. Now, my point in raising that is, again, we have a clear, detailed technological connection to the Third Reich and some of the projects that they were investigating. And the other thing I find very interesting is, again, Major Marcel's action and behavior. Because why would he think to pick up that metal and blow through it? In other words, he's acting as if he already knew something about that debris and its possible origin. And there is not a ufology researcher in the Roswell community that has noticed this point. And what do you think Stanton Freeman would say to that? Oh, uh, Stanton Friedman has already uh, given his review of, of Roswell and the Reich, and <laughs> of course he ignores everything in it, and he he, he accuses me or, or states something to the effect of uh, this has the appearance of scholarship, okay? Well, he just does not like the conclusion, and it's obvious why. Well... There's a chapter in your book as well where uh, I mean, it talks about the possibility of um, uh, Japanese weapons experts maybe working on the yes. craft, uh, which yes. came down. Now, that maybe would explain the, uh, the, the strange symbols again, perhaps. 
Well, yes, that's actually that's actually the thesis of Nick Redfern in a book of his that that I really enjoyed and really like uh, a book of his called Body Snatchers in the Desert, because it was really uh, to give him due credit, it was really the first book that would that took a very serious look at the Roswell story from the standpoint that it represented some advanced terrestrial technology that was not native to the United States of America. And his thesis is that what you had with the Roswell crash is a combination of two things. It was a combination of the use of some advanced German technology that had been captured uh, from the Nazis at the end of the war and brought to this country, <coughs> pardon me, and used in conjunction with some Japanese doctors that from their notorious Unit 731 that, that did all sorts of just uh, horrifically grisly uh, experiments on, on human beings, on uh, Japanese progeria victims, on, on Chinese and American and, and British prisoners of war, and so on and so forth. But they brought a bunch of these, just like they brought a bunch of, of the Nazi medical doctors to this country to put them to work in our space medicine program. They brought a bunch of these Japanese doctors to this country, and in, including some of the very Japanese uh, progeria victims that they were experimenting on and continued to use these uh, hapless people in, in a post-war American project. So that's Nick Redfern's thesis, that this represented kind of a combination of uh, Nazi and Japanese technology that we secretly continued after the war. But the point is, with Redfern's work, you have the first real attempt to break that Roswell dialectic, you know, the dialectic between an extraterrestrial off-world interpretation and an utterly trivial and mundane earthly explanation, and to find a middle ground for it. And, and uh, he's to be credited for taking the bold step to to try and break out of that dialectical trap that we've been in for the last 60 years. Okay. Um, to take this into a bit of a different direction then. If, if sure. plasma technology was made in Argentina and there were uh -huh. bell craft flying around back in the 40s uh -huh. uh, across uh -huh. the USA and other parts of the world, are we uh -huh. still seeing evidence of that technology today? I think so. I think it's great, obviously greatly advanced. I, I, I want to make one thing clear. I am not philosophically opposed to the existence of extraterrestrials or, you know, uh, UFOs from other planets. My my sole point is is in order to make that claim, you have to examine the physics signature and and deduce as much from the details of of these reports as you can. And this is what I'm attempting to do in Roswell. But yes, I think I think we we do see clear evidence of some of this technology in use today. If you if you look at certain reports and certain events very clearly. Yes, because obviously, I mean, you look at the old textbooks and, and, and you know, all the old Sumerian texts, and uh, you do see these sort of strange obje objects sketched yes. in the sky. So yes. you're, you're, you're quite open-minded to, you know, to the fact that, you know, there, there may be something else out there. Ex ex oh, sure, absolutely. My only point is, is I'm not going to chase after authorities who assure us that what they say is true because they're credentialed nuclear physicists and have worked in, in certain research projects in the United States and assume that craft that have maximum speeds of 400 to 1200 miles an hour are sufficient for interstellar travel. That's just, kind of, you know, that's just clearly kind of ludicrous on the face of it. So I, you know, I think that we are, um, 
yes, witnessing a technology here, but the question is, is any of the detailed descriptions of that technology extant in their own research? Does that necessarily compel to an extraterrestrial conclusion? And my answer is no, if you can document a prima facie and strong case that this technology has provenance or antecedents from Nazi Germany. If that is so, then you're not dealing with an extraterrestrial technology, and you are dealing with some sort of development of what the Nazis were doing during the war. But of course, but um, what if some of your research was wasn't quite right? Um, would you be open to that fact that it could, you know, that well, sure. they, yeah, sure. Uh, I, listen, listen. I I am not like I said at the beginning of the interview. I do not hold this position dogmatically. I do hold it strongly. But I, I suspect that you're going to find a lot more dogmatism on the part of the extraterrestrial interpreters than you will on me. And do you believe that there's a lot of, um, I suppose, black technology out there that we haven't, uh, you know, uh, been made uh, aware of? And uh, if, if it was to come forward with the sort of technologies that, that, that they've got out there that was uh, taken away from the Roswell crash, I mean, surely this would take us away from the, uh, the foreign oil use. And oh, sure. Yeah, I, I do believe that. In fact, uh, Ben Rich, the, the late Ben Rich, who was the head of, um, I believe it was Lockheed Skunk Works here in, here in the United States, close toward the end of his death, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing very loosely here, said something to the effect in a public gathering that we now have the technology to take us to the stars. Now, for a man in his position to say something like that, you know, he, he's not uh, choosing his words lightly. So it's another little indicator, yes, there is a lot of technology that is off the books and being kept deliberately hidden, and I believe to a certain extent it's because they want to keep hidden its impact on our current global financial energy system, which is in the hands of, of in my opinion, a kind of a predatory elite. But there's another reason for keeping it hidden, and I do want to mention it. <clears throat> this kind of physics, let's go back to what I said about the bell. The third thing that the Nazis were after this kind of, of ability to manipulate the fabric of space-time, the third reason was they want to weaponize it. And any time you say that you have a technology that is capable of weaponizing the zero-point energy or the energy of the fabric of space-time, what you're really saying is you have your hands on a weapons potential that would make our largest hydrogen bombs look like firecrackers. It's truly planet-busting stuff. So put yourself in the position of that global elite. It is a technology that is much easier, in a certain sense, to engineer than building a hydrogen bomb. And it's therefore a technology that will proliferate much more easily and therefore could fall into the wrong hands much more easily. So they do, in a certain sense, have an altruistic reason for suppressing it and keeping it out of the public eye. And I think that this proliferation concern has to be right up there among them. So in general then, do you, do you think that uh, your theories satisfy most of the Roswell story? Yes, I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written the book. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But you, obviously you're going to get the, the, uh, the other researchers coming in on you here, like you've mentioned before. I'm not attacking you as such, but... Uh, but it's not really an attack on my research, it's an attack on me. Um, most of what I, the few things I have seen coming from that community thus far have been in the way of a carefully disguised ad hominem. Uh, 
or if you want a kind of uh, nitpicking pedophagy. But uh, otherwise, the really astonishing thing since this book has been out, it's only been out about two and a half months, has been the deafening silence from that community. So, you know, it's... Um, it's been it's been obviously a book that's touched a lot of nerves. <laughs> yeah, and again, um, other people have come forward that said that they've worked on um, government uh, sort of official jobs where, where they back engineered a lot of this uh, alien technology okay. in the past. And for example, F uh, Philip Corso um, did he didn't he Philip Corso in his book uh, The Day After Roswell uh, hints about the apparent Nazi connection. Oh, yes. That I go over. Uh, I, I'm not as quick to dismiss Colonel Corso as many of the Roswell researchers are. Um, and it's precisely for the reason that you suggest. Of course, he, he uh, defends the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But one of the odd things that I note in Roswell and the Reich is that almost every time he does so, in the immediate context, he'll make some reference to the fact that this technology also looked Nazi. So in other words, it's as if he's pointing his finger to do different, contradic almost contradictory places, extraterrestrials on the one hand and Nazi Germany on the other. And I go into his list of the technologies, whether you accept it as real or not, I simply accept it for the sake of argument, and look at his list of technologies that he says we recovered from E.T. and then seeded into American industry. And I look at each of those in turn and point out that if we follow Philip Corso's other finger, the one pointing to Nazi Germany, most of the technologies he's talking about have their antecedents there. And in general, then, what do you believe that Argentina gained from sort of helping fund uh, the, the Nazi technology, helping further it? Well, I don't think, to be honest with you, I don't think that the country of Argentina gained much at all. I think what was gained was on the part of Juan Perón and, and some of his henchmen who were able to tap into this vast reservoir of Nazi loot that was available to them. I think certainly they laundered their own pockets. I don't see any, any gain for the Argentinians from, from this deal. It was, it was strictly a deal that was between the Argentinian elite and, and the Nazi elite, and, and those were the people that benefited. Sure. Okay, now, um, what's your website, uh, Joseph? Uh, my website, uh, I, I'm so busy writing books, I don't, I don't really update it all that often, but I do have one. It's www.gizadeathstar, and that's all one word, all lowercase, gizadeathstar.com. Uh, the books they can find at Amazon, um, I don't know the major chains over there in Great Britain anymore because it's been so long since I've been there, but they can certainly find it. Uh, find the books on Amazon. Sure, well, we'll put a link to amazon.co.uk uh, with the links for all your books on there as well. Look, Joseph, thank yep. you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin, for having me on. If you'd like to find out more on Joseph's work, go to www.geezadeathstar.com or go to my site, themoreshow.co.uk and look up Joseph Ferrell under past guests. So until next time, be safe.